1981, photographer Lynn Goldsmith took a photo of the hot new pop musician Prince. Artist Andy Warhol later created a series of silkscreen prints and pencil illustrations based on Goldsmith's copyrighted 1981 photograph. Warhol made some superficial changes to Goldsmith's original photograph, but they remained recognizably derived from Goldsmith's original. Goldsmith had not learned about Warhol's print series until 2016, at which time the Andy Warhol Foundation held the copyright in the print series. So, Goldsmith sued the Foundation for copyright infringement, and the Foundation raised fair use as a defense. When the case made its way before the Supreme Court, they were asked what the proper test is for determining whether a work is transformative under the first factor of the Copyright Act's Fair Use Doctrine. And the court just issued a decision yesterday, May 18th. So let's find out what they decided in Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts v. Lynn Goldsmith. Justice Sotomayor delivered the opinion of the court, in which Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Jackson joined. Justice Gorsuch filed a concurring opinion in which Justice Jackson joined. Justice Kagan filed a dissenting opinion in which Chief Justice Roberts joined. This copyright case involves not one, but two artists. The first, Andy Warhol, is well known. His images of products like Campbell's soup cans and of celebrities like Marilyn Monroe appear in museums around the world. Warhol's contribution to contemporary art is undeniable. The second, Lynn Goldsmith, is less well-known, but she too was a trailblazer. Goldsmith began a career in rock and roll photography when there were few women in the genre. Her award-winning concert and portrait images, however, shot to the top. Goldsmith's work appeared in Life, Time, Rolling Stone, and People magazines, not to mention the National Portrait Gallery and the Museum of Modern Art. She captured some of the 20th century's greatest rock stars, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, Patti Smith, Bruce Springsteen, and, as relevant here, Prince. In 1984, Vanity Fair sought to license one of Goldsmith's Prince photographs for use as an artist reference. The magazine wanted the photograph to help illustrate a story about the musician. Goldsmith agreed, on the condition that the use of her photo would be for one time only. The artist Vanity Fair hired was Andy Warhol. Warhol made a silk screen using Goldsmith's photo, and Vanity Fair published the resulting image alongside an article about Prince. The magazine credited Goldsmith for the source photograph, and it paid her $400. Warhol, however, did not stop there. From Goldsmith's photograph, he derived 15 additional works. Later, the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, Inc., AWF, licensed one of those works to Condé Nast, again for the purpose of illustrating a magazine story about prints. 
AWF came away with $10,000. Goldsmith received nothing. When Goldsmith informed AWF that she believed its use of her photograph infringed her copyright, AWF sued her. The district court granted summary judgment for AWF on its assertion of fair use, but the Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed. In this court, the sole question presented is whether the first fair use factor, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes, weighs in favor of AWF's recent commercial licensing to Condé Nast. On that narrow issue, and limited to the challenged use, the court agrees with the Second Circuit. The first factor favors Goldsmith, not AWF. Part 1 Lynn Goldsmith is a professional photographer. Her specialty is concert and portrait photography of musicians. At age 16, Goldsmith got one of her first shots, an image of the Beatles' trendy boots, before the band performed live on The Ed Sullivan Show. Within 10 years, Goldsmith had photographed everyone from Led Zeppelin to James Brown. At that time, Goldsmith had few female peers, but she was a self-starter. She quickly became a leading rock photographer in an era when women on the scene were largely dismissed as groupies. In 1981, Goldsmith convinced Newsweek magazine to hire her to photograph Prince Rogers Nelson, then an up-and-coming and hot young musician. Newsweek agreed, and Goldsmith took photos of Prince in concert at the Palladium in New York City and in her studio on West 36th Street. Newsweek ran one of the concert photos together with an article titled The Naughty Prince of Rock. Goldsmith retained the other photos. She holds copyright in all of them. One of Goldsmith's studio photographs, a black-and-white portrait of Prince, is the original copyrighted work at issue in this case. In 1984, Goldsmith, through her agency, licensed that photograph to Vanity Fair to serve as an artist reference for an illustration in the magazine. The terms of the license were that the illustration was to be published in Vanity Fair, November 1984 issue. It can appear one time full page and one time under one quarter page. No other usage right granted. Goldsmith was to receive $400 and a source credit. To make the illustration, Vanity Fair hired pop artist Andy Warhol. Warhol was already a major figure in American art, known, among other things, for his silkscreen portraits of celebrities. From Goldsmith's photograph, Warhol created a silkscreen portrait of Prince, which appeared alongside an article about Prince in the November 1984 issue of Vanity Fair. The article, titled Purple Fame, is primarily about the sexual style of the new celebrity and his music. Goldsmith received her $400 fee, and Vanity Fair credited her for the source photograph. Warhol received an unspecified amount. In addition to the single illustration authorized by the Vanity Fair license, 
Warhol created 15 other works based on Goldsmith's photograph, 13 silkscreen prints, and two pencil drawings. The works are collectively referred to as the Print Series. Goldsmith did not know about the Print Series until 2016 when she saw the image of an orange silkscreen portrait of Prince, Orange Prince, on the cover of a magazine published by Vanity Fair's parent company, Condé Nast. By that time, Warhol had died, and the Print Series had passed to the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. AWF no longer possesses the works, but it asserts copyright in them. It has licensed images of the works for commercial and editorial uses. In particular, after Prince died in 2016, Condé Nast contacted AWF about the possibility of reusing the 1984 Vanity Fair image for a special edition magazine that would commemorate Prince. Once AWF informed Condé Nast about the other print series images, however, Condé Nast obtained a license to publish Orange Prints instead. The magazine, titled The Genius of Prints, is a tribute to Prince Rogers Nelson, 1958-2006. It is devoted to prints. Condé Nast paid AWF $10,000 for the license. Goldsmith received neither a fee nor a source credit. Remember that Goldsmith, too, had licensed her prints images to magazines such as Newsweek to accompany a story about the musician and Vanity Fair to serve as an artist reference. But that was not all. Between 1981 and 2016, Goldsmith's photos of prints appeared on or between the covers of People, Reader's Digest, Guitar World, and Musician magazines. People magazine, in fact, paid Goldsmith $1,000 to use one of her copyrighted photographs in a special collector's edition, Celebrating Prince, 1958-2016, just after Prince died. People's tribute, like Condé Nasta's, honors the life and music of Prince. Other magazines, including Rolling Stone and Time, also released special editions. All of them depicted Prince on the cover. All of them used a copyrighted photograph in service of that object. And all of them, except Condé Nast, credited the photographer. When Goldsmith saw Orange Prince on the cover of Condé Nast's special edition magazine, she recognized her work. It's the photograph, she later testified. Orange Prince crops, flattens, traces, and colors the photo, but otherwise does not alter it. Goldsmith notified AWF of her belief that it had infringed her copyright. AWF then sued Goldsmith and her agency, for a declaratory judgment of non-infringement or, in the alternative, fair use. Goldsmith counterclaimed for infringement. The district court granted summary judgment for AWF. The court considered the four fair use factors enumerated in 17 U.S.C. section 107 and held that the print series works made fair use of Goldsmith's photograph. As to the first factor, 
The works were transformative because, looking at them and the photograph side by side, they have a different character, give Goldsmith's photograph a new expression, and employ new aesthetics with creative and communicative results distinct from Goldsmith's. In particular, the works can reasonably be perceived to have transformed prints from a vulnerable, uncomfortable person to an iconic, larger-than-life figure, such that each print series work is immediately recognizable as a Warhol rather than as a photograph of prints. Although the second factor, the nature of Goldsmith's copyrighted work, would ordinarily weigh in her favor— This factor was of limited importance because the print series works are transformative. The third factor, the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work, favored AWF because, according to the district court, Warhol removed nearly all the photograph's protectable elements in creating the print series. Finally, the fourth factor likewise favored AWF because the print series works are not market substitutes that have harmed, or have the potential to harm, Goldsmith. The Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit reversed and remanded. It held that all four fair use factors favored Goldsmith. On the first factor, the purpose and the character of the use, Section 1071, the Court of Appeals rejected the notion that any secondary work that adds a new aesthetic or new expression to its source material is necessarily transformative. The question was, instead, whether the secondary work's use of its source material is in service of a fundamentally different and new artistic purpose and character. Such transformative purpose and character must, at bare minimum, comprise something more than the imposition of another artist's style on the primary work. Here, however, the overarching purpose and function of the two works at issue is identical, not merely in the broad sense that they are created as works of visual art, but also in the narrow but essential sense that they are portraits of the same person. The Court of Appeals also rejected the district court's logic that each print series work is transformative because it is immediately recognizable as a Warhol, which the Court of Appeals believed would create a celebrity plagiarist privilege. On the other three factors, the Court of Appeals found that the creative and unpublished nature of Goldsmith's photograph favored her that the amount and substantiality of the portion taken, here the essence of the photograph, was not reasonable in relation to the purpose of the use, and that AWF's commercial licensing encroached on Goldsmith's protected market to license her photograph to publications for editorial purposes and to other artists to create derivative works. The court noted that there was no material dispute that both Goldsmith and AWF have sought to license, and indeed have successfully licensed, their respective depictions of prints to popular print magazines to accompany articles about him. Finally, although the district court had not reached the issue, the Court of Appeals rejected AWF's argument that the print series works were not substantially similar to Goldsmith's photograph.
Judge Jacobs concurred. He stressed that the Court of Appeals' holding did not consider, let alone decide, whether the infringement here encumbers the original print series works. Instead, the only use at issue was the Foundation's commercial licensing of image of the print series. This court granted certiorari. Part 2 AWF does not challenge the Court of Appeals' holding that Goldsmith's photograph and the print series works are substantially similar. The question here is whether AWF can defend against a claim of copyright infringement because it made fair use of Goldsmith's photograph. Although the Court of Appeals analyzed each fair use factor, the only question before this court is whether the court below correctly held that the first factor, the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes, weighs in Goldsmith's favor. AWF contends that the print series works are transformative and that the first factor therefore weighs in its favor because the works convey a different meaning or message than the photograph. The Court of Appeals erred, according to AWF, by not considering that new expression. But the first fair use factor instead focuses on whether an allegedly infringing use has a further purpose or different character, which is a matter of degree, and the degree of difference must be weighed against other considerations, like commercialism. Although new expression may be relevant to whether a copying use has a sufficiently distinct purpose or character, it is not, without more, dispositive of the first factor. Here, the specific use of Goldsmith's photograph alleged to infringe her copyright is AWF's licensing of orange prints to Condé Nast. As portraits of prints used to depict prints in magazine stories about prints, the original photograph and AWF's copying use of it share substantially the same purpose. Moreover, the copying use is of a commercial nature. Even though Orange Prince adds new expression to Goldsmith's photograph, as the district court found, this court agrees with the Court of Appeals that in the context of the challenged use, the first fair use factor still favors Goldsmith. Section A. The Copyright Act encourages creativity by granting to the author of an original work a bundle of exclusive rights. That bundle includes the rights to reproduce the copyrighted work, to prepare derivative works, and, in the case of pictorial or graphic works, to display the copyrighted work publicly. The Act, however, reflects a balance of competing claims upon the public interest. Creative work is to be encouraged and rewarded, but private motivation must ultimately serve the cause of promoting broad public availability of literature, music, and the other arts. Copyright thus trades off the benefits of incentives to create against the costs of restrictions on copying. The Act, for example, limits the duration of copyright, 
as required by the Constitution, makes facts and ideas uncopyrightable, and limits the scope of copyright owners' exclusive rights. This balancing act between creativity and availability, including for use in new works, is reflected in one such limitation, the defense of fair use. In 1976, Congress codified the common law doctrine of fair use in Section 107, which provides, The fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research is not an infringement of copyright. To determine whether a particular use is fair, the statute sets out four factors to be considered. 1. Whether the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for nonprofit educational purposes. 2. The nature of the copyrighted work. 3. The amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole. And 4. The effect of the use on the potential market for or value of the copyrighted work. The Fair Use Doctrine permits courts to avoid rigid application of the copyright statute when, on occasion, it would stifle the very creativity which that law is designed to foster. The Act's Fair Use provision, in turn, sets forth general principles, the application of which requires judicial balancing, depending upon relevant circumstances. Because those principles apply across a wide range of copyrightable material, from books to photographs to software, fair use is a flexible concept, and its application may well vary depending on context. For example, in applying the fair use provision, copyrights protection may be stronger where the copyrighted material serves an artistic rather than a utilitarian function. 1. The first fair use factor is the purpose and character of the use, including whether such use is of a commercial nature or is for non-profit educational purposes. This factor considers the reasons for and nature of the copier's use of an original work. The central question it asks is whether the new work merely supersedes the objects of the original creation supplanting the original, or instead adds something new with a further purpose or different character. In that way, the first factor relates to the problem of substitution, copyrights bet noir. The use of an original work to achieve a purpose that is the same as, or highly similar to, that of the original work is more likely to substitute for or supplant the work. Consider the purposes listed in the preamble paragraph of Section 107. Criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, or research. Although the examples given are illustrative and not limitative, they reflect the sorts of copying that courts and Congress most commonly have found to be fair uses, and so may guide the first factor inquiry. As the Court of Appeals observed, the examples are easily understood as they contemplate the use of an original work to serve manifestly different purpose 
from the work itself. Criticism of a work, for instance, ordinarily does not supersede the objects of or supplant the work. Rather, it uses the work to serve a distinct end. Not every instance will be clear-cut, however. Whether a use shares the purpose or character of an original work, or instead has a further purpose or different character, is a matter of degree. Most copying has some further purpose in the sense that copying is socially useful ex post. Many secondary works add something new. That alone does not render such uses fair. Rather, the first factor, which is just one factor in a larger analysis, asks whether and to what extent the use at issue has a purpose or character different from the original. The larger the difference, the more likely the first factor weighs in favor of fair use. The smaller the difference, the less likely. A use that has a further purpose or different character is said to be transformative. As before, transformativeness is a matter of degree. That is important because the word transform, though not included in section 107, appears elsewhere in the Copyright Act. The statute defines derivative works, which the copyright owner has the exclusive right to prepare, to include any other form in which a work may be recast, transformed, or adapted. In other words, the owner has a right to derivative transformations of her work. Such transformations may be substantial, like the adaptation of a book into a movie. To be sure, this right is subject to fair use. The two are not mutually exclusive. But an overbroad concept of transformative use, one that includes any further purpose or any different character, would narrow the copyright owner's exclusive right to create derivative works. To preserve that right, the degree of transformation required to make transformative use of an original must go beyond that required to qualify as a derivative. For example, this court in Campbell considered whether parody may be fair use. In holding that it may, the court explained that parody has an obvious claim to transformative value because it can provide social benefit by shedding light on an earlier work and in the process creating a new one. The use at issue in Campbell was two live crews copying of certain lyrics and musical elements from Roy Orbison's song, Oh Pretty Woman, to create a rap derivative titled Pretty Woman. Without a doubt, two live crew transformed Orbison's song by adding new lyrics and musical elements, such that Pretty Woman had a new message and a different aesthetic than Oh Pretty Woman. Indeed, the whole genre of music changed from rock ballad to rap. That was not enough for the first factor to weigh in favor of fair use, however. The court found it necessary to determine whether two live crews' transformation of Orbison's song rose to the level of parody, a distinct purpose of commenting on the original or criticizing it. Distinguishing between parody which targets an author or work for humor or ridicule, and satire, which ridicules society 
but does not necessarily target an author or work. The court further explained that parody needs to mimic an original to make its point, and so has some claim to use the creation of its victims, or collective victims, imagination, whereas satire can stand on its own two feet and so requires justification for the very act of borrowing. More generally, when commentary has no critical bearing on the substance or style of the original composition, the claim to fairness in borrowing from another's work diminishes accordingly if it does not vanish, and other factors like the extent of its commerciality loom larger. This discussion illustrates two important points. First, the fact that a use is commercial as opposed to nonprofit is an additional element of the first factor. The commercial nature of the use is not dispositive, but it is relevant. As the court explained in Campbell, it is to be weighed against the degree to which the use has a further purpose or different character. Second, the first factor also relates to the justification for the use. In a broad sense, a use that has a distinct purpose is justified because it furthers the goal of copyright, namely to promote the progress of science and the arts, without diminishing the incentive to create. A use that shares the purpose of a copyrighted work, by contrast, is more likely to provide the public with a substantial substitute for matter protected by the copyright owner's interests in the original work or derivatives of it, which undermines the goal of copyright. In a narrower sense, a use may be justified because copying is reasonably necessary to achieve the user's new purpose. Parody, for example, needs to mimic an original to make its point. Similarly, other commentary or criticism that targets an original work may have compelling reason to conjure up the original by borrowing from it. An independent justification like this is particularly relevant to assessing fair use where an original work and copying use share the same or highly similar purposes, or where wide dissemination of a secondary work would otherwise run the risk of substitution for the original or licensed derivatives of it. Once again, the question of justification is one of degree. In sum, the first fair use factor considers whether the use of a copyrighted work has a further purpose or different character, which is a matter of degree, and the degree of difference must be balanced against the commercial nature of the use. If an original work and a secondary use share the same or highly similar purposes, and the secondary use is of a commercial nature, the first factor is likely to weigh against fair use, absent some other justification for copying. We've come to the end of the first half of this opinion, but don't worry, next episode we will pick up right where we left off. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.